Chapter Six of the Four Faces by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Six, The House in Grafton Street. One afternoon, some days later, I was sitting in my flat in South Moulton Street, smoking a pipe and carelessly skimming an evening paper, when my man brought me some letters which had just arrived. Several I tossed aside, unopened. I recognized the handwritings and was in no haste to absorb the contents of epistles from acquaintances whose company, at the best of times, bored me stiff, as some Americans say. But the letter was there that I had expected in the morning, and at once I tore it open. Dulcie wrote chiefly about herself, which was all I wanted to hear, about her father and Aunt Hannah, while two pages she devoted to her little brother Dick, of whom she was inordinately fond. Dick, she said, had shown the utmost pluck and endurance throughout his painful convalescence after his rough-and-tumble with the burglars. She told me how he had from the first sat up in bed with his honorable wounds upon him, bandaged and swathed, joking and making light of the occurrence now, as perhaps only the best breed of English schoolboy knows how. One thing still puzzled both little Dick and herself, and for that matter the whole family, she said. Who could the woman be to whom the thieves had alluded? No word, added Dulcie, had as yet been forthcoming as to the whereabouts of any of the valuables stolen on that memorable day, either family jewels or plate, and the detectives at Scotland Yard acknowledged that, so far, matters were at a deadlock. Further on in her newsy letter, Dulcie made mention of the fascinating widow staying at the Rook Hotel in Newbury, and of her wish to know her better. She added, incidentally, that Mrs. Stapleton had been away since the day after the meet at Holt Manor, and that no one knew where she was staying. She hoped she would soon be back, she said, as she wished so much to renew her acquaintance and to strengthen it. Dulcie then spoke of her Aunt Hannah, who had been particularly amusing and crotchety of late but added that she really was such a dear, at heart, that people all loved her when they came to know her well. "'My dear,' she wrote, "'Aunt Hannah has surpassed herself lately. You know what vigorous likes and dislikes she takes all of a sudden? Well, now Auntie has conceived an inordinate aversion for poor Mrs. Stapleton, and seems inclined not only to give her the cold shoulder, but to hound her down by saying the nastiest things about her, just as the other people in the county did when she first came to live among us. I rather believe that she had this feeling all along, more or less, but now she seems positively to hate her, though she confesses that she doesn't know why she does. Isn't that like Andy? And now she has been asking me never to notice Mrs. Stapleton, and not to speak to her again when she returns, in fact, to drop the acquaintance entirely and that just as we have called, and I've tried to be nice to her out hunting, and we've had her to dine. I told you how taken father was with her, and how he took her all over the house and showed her simply everything. I really don't see why I should draw back now, nor does father. As a matter of fact, I don't see how we can. It has gone too far. And just to satisfy one of dear old auntie's whims. She has a good many, as you know, Mike. There is just this one thing, however, that sometimes one of her unaccountable whims or dislikes turns out to have been well-grounded. My darling then went on to speak of her father and of the happiness our engagement afforded him, happiness tempered, as she could not help knowing, by the sorrow her leaving him would bring to him, 
for the most wonderful confidence and companionship existed between father and daughter. This sadness, Dulcie went on, came out almost pathetically in her father's even added tenderness to her. He whose tenderness and affection had always been such a wonderful thing to her since her earliest childhood. But now, she said, her father sometimes followed her about the house and grounds when she had been absent from him for a short time, seeking occasion for talks with her, giving her his confidence, and consulting her wishes on matters about the gardens and stables in a way that was quite touching. It was as though, now that the parting was soon to take place, he could not get enough of his only daughter's company as if the old man clung to her more than ever before. The closely written sheets dropped from my hand onto my knee. Ah, my own little girl, I thought, who wouldn't miss you, sadly, yes, terribly. Your delightful presence, the truth and honor that seem to be manifest in your smallest gesture, in every glance from your clear eyes, the companionship of your fearless intellect cutting through conventionalities like a knife, arriving at the right point with the unerring instinct of a woman, yet with the naivety of a child. Memories crowded in upon me, memories of all my happy days with Dulcie in the country, in the hunting field, in the gardens about her home, of afternoons spent among the books and prints and pictures in her father's quiet, book-lined library at Holt, of the evenings in the drawing-room at the piano, of hours of pleasant talk in the beautiful conservatories and on the grassy terraces, and by the lakeside below the tennis lawn. What I thought would life be like when at last I had her always with me, brightening my life, filling my own home, our home, with laughter and with the music of her voice. Again and again she rose to my enthralled vision, and ever she was youth and love, the vision crowned with the wonder of her nebulous brown-gold hair as she gazed at me out of her sweet clear eyes, in which I seem still to read unfathomable purity and truth. It is a terrible thing to be in love. Some savage races there are which hold to the belief that the spirits of lovers changing places give rise to the feverish mental upheaval which we prosaically term falling in love, the spirits being restless at their enforced imprisonment and unsatisfied until they have returned each to its appointed sphere. Now that I have recovered from the affliction I sometimes wonder if it might not with advantage be treated as ordinary maladies and some passions are, with the aid of drugs. Perhaps some day it will be. Certainly it soon will be, if the eugenists get their way. And thinking of the letter I had just read, which now lay folded in my pocket, my memory drifted backward. For since the day I had met Jack Osborne at Brooks's on his return from Nigeria, many incidents had occurred which puzzled me. Trifling incidents individually, no doubt, yet significant when considered in the concrete. There was the incident, for instance, of Sir Harry Dawson's declaring in a letter written to Lord Easterton from the Riviera that he had never met Gastrell, never heard of him even, though Lord Easterton had Gastrell's assurance that he knew Sir Harry Dawson, and had intended to call upon him on the evening he had unwittingly entered Lord Easterton's house, which was next door. Then there was something not quite normal in Gastrell's posing one day as a married man, the next as a bachelor also in his pretending at one moment that he had never seen Osborne and myself before, yet admitting at the next that he had met us. True, he had advanced an apparently sound reason for this full fast of his, but still. 
the affair too in Maresfield Gardens. That surely was an incident which bordered on a mystery. I felt I should never forget our extraordinary reception that night, the black outhouse, as stage managers say, our repeated ringing the doorbell, the slow unlocking and unbolting the door, the cautious inquiry, our wait in the darkness after our admission, the discovery of that horrible serpent with its chilling eyes, the locked door, the sudden entry of Gastrell and his odd conversation. Then the conflagration which had occurred a few days later, and the subsequent discovery among the debris of a body, charred and stabbed, the apparent ignorance of everybody as to whose body it was, the statement made by the police that none knew the names of the subtenants who had occupied that house when the fire had broken out, or what had since become of them, the actual tenant was in America. Without a doubt, I reflected as I knocked the ashes out of my pipe into the grate, something queer was going on, and I had inadvertently got myself mixed up in it. The last incident to puzzle me had been that momentary glance of mutual recognition exchanged between the woman I knew only as Mrs. Gastrell, or Jasmine Gastrell, as Osborne always spoke of her, and Mrs. Stapleton, and their subsequent apparent entire lack of recognition. That certainly had been most odd. What could have been the cause of it? Why, knowing each other, did they all at once feign to be strangers? And the extraordinarily calm way Mrs. Stapleton had, looking me full in the eyes, assured me that she had never before even seen the woman she had just smiled at. Lastly, though this was of less consequence, how came Jack Osborne to be dancing attendance upon the woman I knew as Mrs. Gastrell when he had assured me as we drove away in the taxi from Maresfield Gardens that night that though he admired her, he mistrusted her. I had filled my pipe again, and as I puffed at it to set it going, one more thought occurred to me, and this thought, I must say, perplexed me as much as any. Hugesson Gastrell was said to have spent the whole of his life, until six months previously, in Australia and Tasmania. If that were so, then how did he come to have so large a circle of friends, or at any rate of acquaintances, acquaintances too of such distinction and high position? Was it possible he could in a few months have come to know all these peers and peeresses, and baronets and knights, distinguished musicians and actors and actresses, leading members of the learned professions, and all the rest of the society crowd who had thronged his house that evening? Suddenly something I had been told at the club an hour or so before flashed back into my mind. Another club member besides Easterton had, it seemed, become acquainted with Gastrell through Gastrell's calling at the wrong house by mistake. A coincidence? Possibly. And yet... I sucked meditatively at my pipe. Suddenly the telephone rang. Easterton was speaking. What? I exclaimed in answer to the startling information he gave me. When did he disappear? Where was he last seen? No, he has not been here. I haven't seen him since Gastrell's reception. Oh, yes, I saw you there. Yes, very extraordinary. No. Oh, no. Good. I'll come to you at once. Are you at Linden Gardens? Very well. I'll come straight to the club. Mechanically, I hung up the receiver. Curious thoughts, strange conjectures, wonderings, arguments crowded my brain in confusion. Five days had passed since the date of Gastrell's reception 
when I had seen Jack Osborne at supper with the woman he said he mistrusted. Since that evening, according to what Easterton had just told me, nobody had seen or heard of him. He had not been to his chambers. He had not left any message there or elsewhere. He had not written. He had neither telegraphed nor telephoned. Where was he? What was he doing? Could some misfortune have befallen him? Had he... I did not end the sentence my mind had formed. Instead I went out, hailed a taxi, and in a few minutes was on my way to Brooks's. Outside a house in Grafton Street a group of people stood clustered about the door. Others on the pavement opposite stared up at the windows. Two policemen upon the doorstep prevented anyone from entering. Leaning forward as my taxi sped by, I peered in through the open door of the house, then up at the windows, but there was nothing out of the ordinary to be seen. Further down the street we passed three policemen walking briskly along the pavement in the direction of the house. "'What's the commotion in Grafton Street?' I inquired of my driver as I paid him off at Brooks's. "'I've no idea, sir,' he answered. "'Looks as though there was trouble of some sort.' Another fare hailed him, so our conversation ended. I found Easterton awaiting me in a deserted card-room. "'This may be a serious affair, Barrington,' he said in a tone of anxiety as I seated myself in the opposite corner of the big leather-covered settee. Here five days have gone by, and there isn't a sign of Jack Osborne, though he had not told anybody that he intended to absent himself, not even hinted to anybody that he had any idea of doing so. "'You say he has not been seen since Gastrell's reception?' "'Not since then, five days ago.' The fellows here at the club are getting quite alarmed about him. They want to advertise in the newspapers for news of his whereabouts. That means publicity, a shoal of inquiries, and maybe a scandal, I answered thoughtfully. If Jack has intentionally disappeared for a day or two, and all at once finds himself notorious, he will be furious. Just what I tell them, Easterton exclaimed. I wish you would back me up. You see, Jack hasn't any relatives to speak of, and those he has live abroad. Consequently, the fellows here consider it is what the Americans call up to them to institute inquiries, even as such inquiries should necessitate publicity. I pondered for a moment or two. You know, I said, Jack is a curious fellow in some ways. Some call him a crank, but he isn't that. Still, he is something of a character, and absolutely unconventional. I remember his making a bet once that he would punch out a boastful pugilist at the National Sporting Club. No, it wasn't at the NSC. It was at a place down east, Wonderland, they call it. And did he do it? Easterton asked. Did he? By heaven, the poor chap he tackled was carried out unconscious at the end of the second round. Jack's bet was with Teddy Forsyth, and he pocketed a couple of ponies then and there. Did he really? Capital! And Teddy's such a mean chap. He didn't like Parton, did he? Like it. He went about for the rest of the night with a face like a funeral mute's. Capital, Lord Easterton repeated, but to return to the point, Jack's eccentricities and vagaries can have nothing to do with his disappearance. Why not? How do you know? Well, why should they? I only hope he hasn't gone and made a fool of himself in any way that'll make a scandal or get him into trouble. In a way, you know, we are connections. His mother and mine were second cousins. That's really why I feel that I ought to do something to find out what has happened to him. Do you, do you think he can have got mixed up with some woman? I won't say that I actually think so, but I think it's more than possible. 
No. Why? What woman? At that instant I remembered that the woman I had in my mind was the woman who on board the Masonic had, so Jack had told me, called herself Hugeson Gastrell's wife, and called herself his wife again at the house in Maresfield Gardens. But Gastrell had told Easterton, or at any rate led him to suppose, he was unmarried. How, then, could I refer to this woman by name without causing possible friction between Easterton and his tenant, Gastrell? I am afraid I can't tell you, Easterton, I said after an instant's hesitation. I don't want to make mischief, and if what I think is possible is not the case, and I tell you about it, I shall have made mischief. Easterton was silent. For some moments he remained seated in his corner of the settee, looking at me rather strangely. "'I quite understand what you mean, Barrington,' he said at last. "'Still, under the circumstances, I should have thought, and yet no, I dare say you are right. I may tell you candidly, though, that I can't help thinking you must be mistaken in your supposition. Jack doesn't care about women in that way. He never has cared about them. The only thing he cares about is sport, though, of course, he admires a pretty woman, as we all do. To that observation I deemed it prudent to make no reply, and at that moment a waiter entered and came across the room to us. "'Your lordship is wanted on the telephone,' he said solemnly. "'Who is it?' Easterton asked, looking up. "'Scotland Yard, my lord.' "'Oh, say, hold the line, and I'll come down.' "'Have you informed the police, then?' I asked quickly, when the servant had left the room. "'Yes, I went to Scotland Yard this morning.' but I told them not to let a word about the disappearance get into the newspapers, if they could help it, until they heard further from me, and they promised they would respect my wish. You had better come down with me. They may have found out something. I waited outside the glass hut, which effectually shut in all sound, watching Lord Easterton's face below the electric light. His lips moved rapidly, and by the way his expression suddenly changed, I judged that he was hearing news of importance. After talking for a minute or two he hung up the receiver, pushed open the door, and came out. His face betrayed his emotion. "'Come over here,' he said in a curious tone. "'I have something to tell you.' I followed him a little way down the passage which led to the card-rooms. When we were out of sight and earshot of the club servants he stopped abruptly and turned to me. "'Jack has been found,' he said quickly. "'He was found gagged and bound in a house in Grafton Street half an hour ago.' He is there now, and the police are with him. Good God! I exclaimed. How did they identify him? He was not unconscious. The police want me to go there at once. Come. We walked up to Grafton Street, as it was such a little way. Also Easterton wanted to tell me more. The inspector who had just spoken to him had not told him what had led to the police entering the house in Grafton Street, or if anybody else had been found upon the premises. He had only told him that Scotland Yard had for some weeks had the house under surveillance. They had suspected that something irregular was going on there, but they did not know what. "'I expect they have a pretty shrewd idea,' Easterton added, as we crossed Piccadilly, "'but they won't say what it is. Hello, just look at that crowd!' Up at the end of Dover Street, where Grafton begins, the roadway was blocked with people. When we reached the crowd we had some difficulty in forcing our way through it. A dozen policemen were keeping people back. "'Are you Lord Easterton?' the officer at the entrance asked, as Easterton handed him his card. "'Ah, then come this way, please, my lord. This gentleman, a friend of yours? Follow the constable, please.' 
we were shown into a room on the ground floor to the right of the hall. It was large, high-ceilinged, with a billiard table in the middle. Half a dozen men were standing about, two in police uniform, the remainder I guessed to be constables in plain clothes. Suddenly I started and uttered an exclamation. Seated in a big armchair was Dulcie Challoner, looking pale, frightened. Beside her, with her back to me, stood Aunt Hannah. End of chapter 6 Recording by Tom Weiss TomsAudiobooks.com